What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Elder Scrolls Podcast. I'm Scott, as always, here with Michael and Drew. And today we are talking all about the Nine Divines, or Eight Divines, depending on your political persuasion, I suppose. But mm-hmm. we'll, we'll start getting into it, but I just want to throw out one sort of parameter. We're going to try and keep this a little more grounded in the sort of imperial understanding of the divines. So we're not talking about just the Aedra broadly. Like we'll bring them up, you know, other interpretations occasionally to sort of contrast them. But we're going to keep it, you know, Talos, Akatosh, Arke, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So where mm-hmm. do we want to start? Do we want to start with like the biggest hitters or do we actually want to start with some of the... Well, what about, how about starting with some actual lore on the Divines and how they were created in the first place? That a little bit sense. of an overview of how obviously we had Saint Alicia make these Divines because she had help with her slave rebellion from the Nords, but then the Needs, they had the old, old Mary pantheon because mm-hmm. they just took the pantheon of their overlords and then to kind of like make everyone get on, which... You know, it kind of sounds silly when you think about it. Like, I don't think Nords would be, like, happy with any changes. But she did get all of the kind of pantheons and blur it into her own one. To be honest, I actually would say, like, it's probably even a little bit more human-flavoured anyway. Just because... Than Elven, it yeah, is. Yeah. But but just but changing I mean... gods in general, I, I would find strange. Like, there's a, there's a line somewhere that's like, oh, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was good enough for the Nords. I feel like and if like, you... If you had like a uh, like a if you if you saw it happen, I feel like the change would have been a little bit more gradual. Like for example, like very first incarnation of say like you know Kinnereth, like they might start calling Kinnereth and so on. But I feel like it would have been a few like generations of worship where it kind of shifts mm. and changes. Not like this instantly. Okay, you know now yeah. she's all soft and well. That is important context. Like the idea that initially when founding the religion, you've got a bunch of former slaves who kind of somewhat through Stockholm Syndrome, but it's also all they know, are used to elven gods. But a couple of generations later, the grandkids, the great grandkids of those former slaves don't really need heavy elven elements in it. It's kind of just, yeah, I guess it's just a way to reconcile everything. And then the Nine Divines as we see them now, they're... Um, elven elements and even their Nordic elements seem very disconnected. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you actually look at the divines too, the other thing to consider is maybe the the divines that we know today, like the eight divines, like in concept were created by Elysia, but the whole um, rising of the Elysian order and making that the dominant faith and the eight divines sort of like a component of that might be very different to compared to say like the imperial cult that exists afterward through the Riemann empires and septum empires like if you consider in um you know in the real world like look at uh christianity or all abrahamic religions or sowing starting you know i guess it's judaism or whatever ages ago but then you've kind of got like the you know the formation of christianity the formation of islam the, and then you've got the splits within those you know you've got um you know, the sort of Anglican and Catholic and um, Orthodox and all Eastern Orthodox and all of that. Like you can imagine a similar sort of thing somewhat like that. That basically time and different cultures and stuff will have an effect on, on the gods. Even if as a concept, the Christian God has still been a Christian God since Jesus, like the idea. But you know what I mean? It, it is kind of like having a reformation because, yeah. you know, in the early days, more so for the Nords, but you could say so for the Elves too, is the the worship of these gods is very very um, dogmatic. And, and with the Nords, it's very animalistic and like these totems that they, they revere. And when you've got Shaw leading the charge, who's a very aggressive god who hates the Elves, um, these kind of things needed to be kind of nerfed a bit and, and like toned down for everyone to live in a cosmopolitan society. Mm. So it's kind of like a reformation in like getting rid of like, you know, when you imagine it with Christianity and Catholicism, you kind of had to take away some of the really rigorous, strict elements of the religion and make it so that kind of everyone could, mm. you know, like worship it, but it's not not be so like ingrained in every aspect. And if of you your do life. look at a lot of the divines too, they are very like um, cosmopolitan's a word that we throw around all the time, but I mean like it's kind of one size fits all. Like they're not too restrictive. Like they're it's... they're not controversial. I guess is a good way mm. to look at it. There's nothing that you hear in the nine divines teachings that you're like, oh my gosh, that's that's so crazy. And I, I guess that's why a lot of people don't find them to be the most interesting 
group of gods compared to other ones like you know you go look at the dunma pantheon and how they will talk about betrayal and like manipulation and interesting concepts instead of just above all else be good to one another mm. you know yeah it, it is kind of um utilitarian in a sense it's just good for their society and you can i mean even with, with the idea of tiber septim being immortalized as talos in their in their pantheon you can kind of tell with the divines that if people worship this this god or this figure then oh whatever just allow it they can be part of the divines it's like if, if they've got if they've got worshippers then what's wrong with allowing them to be worshipped and venerating them whereas then you get the elves coming in with their they're like you know no this is the way it's done we don't want some human joining the pantheon that's you know it's it's heresy mm. and you can see where the divines is kind of just like we're not getting caught up in all that heresy and sacrilege and it's just you know if you want to worship them and it's got a good value on society also i feel like another reason they have to be besides just different um like so uh muted and not really like they don't have a big cultural persuasion like you know kine or something like that there's a very nordic feeling thing it's just also um early nibbanese culture you, you had all of these like many many different cults and ar around the time of the elysian order there was heaps of stuff going around the obviously eight divines the imperial cult sort of was one of the more popular ones but you can see how it could it could you know ra raise itself to a state of popularity because it was very like fits all and wasn't i guess exclusionary except obviously with daedra but that's pretty um, standard fare. But it's it's easy to make them exclusionary when you can paint the Daedra as these evil, crazy, like, things that, to be fair, like, on a wide scale, except in, you know, the different pantheons around Tamriel, but in Cyrodiil in particular, if you go look at the different shrines and the cults and stuff, like, a lot of them do get kind of screwed over by their Daedra overlords. Like, it's not... Yeah. You're not necessarily going into the best deal. I mean, I find it interesting, actually, that the Needs would even worship the the elven gods in the first place despite the stockholm syndrome like what are they doing but in like, terms of religion like they're they're constantly being like hurt and i guess but i guess it's the same tortured. as like slaves would believe in um in like rome would could mm. believe in roman gods but so did they get time not... did they get it, time for religion it, it's just an interesting idea did I, they have temples did what, they or were they just kind of praying in shackles and well to add on to what you're what you're getting at there if you you know if you're looking at the say the the religion in Somerset, you've got Auriel lead you know the head of the Pantheon, and it's very much their culture is based you know this is generally speaking, but their culture is based around the idea that they have a connection to Auriel and and the High Elves are superior and belong back in in the in Aetherius, in the heavens, and then even with the Nords, you've got um, Kine who breathe the Nords um, onto the throat of the world. And if you're not a Nord or if you're not a High Elf, some of these gods don't really mesh with you personally. But if you imagine in Cyrodiil, say you've got you've got a, a mishmash of different races all living in Cyrodiil, and then you think, oh, you know, Mara, she's the goddess of love, compassion, the bounty of nature. You know, everyone cares about their crops being healthy. This applies to everyone. It's not like, no, the Imperials are superior mm. kind of religion. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, the Talos as well, worship, worship of Talos can be useful too because it is like a ambition figure and a kind of like you know transcendence yeah. idea putting what? that into the culture like you can overcome it helps put faith in the emperor as well whoever is the the ruling monarch it's like yeah th this is how important they are to our to culture. provide more like potential context to the idea of the slaves accepting like the um the elven gods and so on and because they were just born into it it's also like i guess um looking at slavery kind of different to how we do in the modern world and in our recent history where it was very like economical or like sort of transactional or based on stuff like a lot of ancient ancient slavery was and you know you could even look at uh india and a lot of ancient india and stuff's a good example of this and caste systems and stratification of society the the stratification of society in the place of slaves was kind of something like associated with the religion and the gods itself so they could be looking at oriel and like oriel they worship their god and so on but they kind of feel like they're per they're, they can their place as slaves is ordained by the the gods and it's, it is made so by them like so mm. their relationship changes it's a bit different you know what i mean like it's not yeah. it's not necessarily like the sort of it makes sense if you're yeah. told that you're like the bottom of the food chain essentially mm. uh, in, a, in a, yeah you're part of that society yeah, you're, yeah. as opposed to being stolen from somewhere yeah, else and you grow you know, up in like it that. and your religion dictates to you that yeah. you are 
you know, bottom of the food chain, then you'll believe that, I suppose. And the other thing, I guess, to throw out there, because I imagine the cruelty would change depending on the Aelid kingdoms, but, like, there's a lot of your base elven gods, which were the Adric ones. Um, but then you've also got, like, the Daedric uh, ones worshipping the Daedric princes, and they were the places of, like, you know, immeasurable cruelty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, where that it's makes really, sense. you know? Because they still they could even think that the gods have forsaken them in a way or that their elven overlords have become... I guess less adherent to their own religion. Yeah, and they yeah, I can see that. But it's interesting. They're so a lot of the gods still they're not very elven. Like even even Akatosh being like, I mean we can get into this a little bit, but Akatosh being like you know originally an interpretation of Oriel slash Alduin slash, slash sort of like a mix. You know what I mean? You're bringing in the sort of dragon element, which also like I feel like to the Nords the bringer of time and end of times and so on. Like Alduin wouldn't be a a good figure actually also considering that the dragon maybe this is a bit of a law problem but like consider that this creation of the eight divines is happening in like the year 200 and something of the first era whereas isgramor's arrival was only sort of like 500 years before the start of the first era or something like that so mm. then you've kind of got in between those 700 years of time there was like alduin running around with his dragon cult and dominating yeah. the north of skyrim i feel like they really would have had a recent experience with dragons being bad you'd have the flashbacks of like mm, i remember the last time we decided to worship dragons didn't yeah didn't go very well, well actually exactly the dragon <laughs> cult was being exterminated <laughs> a, in the early yeah. first era yeah so it's still like around so it's kind it of... a bit di it's a bit dicey but i mean yeah. the whole thing is shrouded in mystery even the whole concept that akatosh kind of came to alicia in a vision when mm. Akatosh, in the way that she supposedly constructed it for the Divine's religion, didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, it, Akatosh, you know, I've talked about this before, but Akatosh very much seems like a cross between the Time God and elements of Shaw that kind of had to be removed when creating the religion because obviously Shaw was so aggressively pro-men, so aggressively anti-Elven, so that when you see the face of the dragon and the face of the man in Akatosh... I kind of see that as the the human elements of Shaw or Shazar, whatever you want to call him, being kind of implemented into Akatosh. It's, but yeah, it is weird with it's the It's interesting. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people are, ask us, actually, I've seen this question around a bit, and it's about, like, what are the, the sort of real gods? And the problem is in the Elder Scrolls, it's all subjective, and you can't actually go the real god, because especially when you look at, like, if you're just working off the eight divines, like... They were a, a creation. Like, if you were looking at maybe the realist gods, you could go to perhaps the first religions. Like, if we're not talking about the Daedra, in just the Aedra, the earliest religions, so maybe some of the Nordic ones and the Elven ones, you can go like Aldmerian gods of men or so on. But even then, they are so subject to interpretation of what you sort of put onto them, and they don't have that sort of conscious presence like the Daedra. So it's... It, there is no real way to go like what is the real god because some would go like oh Kinnereth is a, a weaker form of kind but then I'm sure there are Nords and stuff out there that are like no they're separate you know in the same way that in you know people could draw all kinds of like uh, big mythic connections in the real world between like you know storm gods and like Indra and Zeus and Thor and or whatnot right they could do that but that doesn't mean some might accept the connections, but others might be like, no way, they're separate, they're different things. So it's, it's kind of like, depends who you ask. You can't get a concrete answer because you can't, unless you have like, you know, the metaphysical um, knowledge of the universe injected straight into your brain. Like you can't. The, the Godhead is the only God. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one more thing about the dragons. Like obviously with the dragon war, there's a lot of anti-dragon sentiment going around. But do you think the Nords still fundamentally would have worshipped the time god dragon, even though Alduin seems to have, like the, the physical manifestation of Alduin seems to have forsaken his role in the in the world and gotten greedy. Do you think they would see that as a corruption on the dragon as opposed to the dragon could being be. Like, do you bad? know what we, you could actually, another thing we've got to consider too about like the politics of the time, the they had to create, like the worshipping the elven gods would have been 
heresy. So if, but if you change it to something like this eight divines, while it might not be like, oh, like the best things for the Nords, it's only the Nords living in the Cyrodiil. Because remember at the time, Skyrim is still independent. And in Skyrim, they're probably just worshipping their Nordic gods like they were for a, for a long time, like separate. And really, they don't really change until um, King Borgus and the sort of Elysian Order has a temporary influence. But then even Ismail Wolfarth comes back and brings back the Nordic pantheon. So I guess they, for a long time, like a lot of the Nords wouldn't all of a sudden convert to the eight divines. Perhaps some did, the ones that exist there. But the eight divines is a religion that is not, you know, antithetical to. It's just like, oh, it's okay. They can do what they want to do, but it's not worshipping the elven gods. You know what I mean? So maybe that's a bit mm -hmm. of a different way to look at it. So they don't, I guess, have to. They can still recognize. You know, What's well, a massive benefit so. to them? Like mm -hmm. if, if you were to just look at Tamriel as a whole and you have Cyrodiil and it's like, oh, this is a whole elven worship area. And then yeah. it goes, actually, now it's not. Like, they'd yeah. still be happy. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, yeah, it's, are there any more, like, uh, points we want to talk about, like, broadly about the Divines? Well, I guess while we're talking about the foundation of it, we've kind of gone into Akatosh. So maybe we should just start with Akatosh and focus on yeah. that. Akatosh, the insane god. Mm. Supposedly. Mm. The splintered As god, you're saying, there's two faces and all these different aspects merged together. Part of this aspect wants to undo time and destroy it and the other one is all about kind of like you know respecting time and the cycles um yeah. one of them loves men one of them's an elven god that hates men well it's all there's a lot of and you especially know, when you bring in the whole like you know marikati selectives dancing atop the yeah. towers that brought about the middle dawn which kind of changed things and and according to them like you know removed the elven elements from Akatosh and then hence split them, which it's still hard to really understand like what it is in terms of law. I, I think I generally like to just look at it still as this one sort of time god archetype and then look at the different versions of it and then you can build that whole like the sort of like Aka concept of the different, you know, the insane god, the time stuff, all of that. But, it, you know, you just can't really get an idea that like, oh, Akatosh yet confirmed split from Oriel, so Oriel's a separate being entirely. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to uh, to work. Yeah, they're different interpretations of the same thing. And, that, and that's the crazy thing about Dragon Breaks is, you know, we think about what that entails, but it is quite literally breaking Akatosh. It's breaking the dragon and stopping the passage of linear time in a place where, you know, that is the structure that forms the whole realm and forms the whole universe without it everything gets kind of screwed up so you know no wonder akatosh is a bit yeah nuts mm. but yeah so but overall no matter what sort of interpretation he generally has something to do with time and being leader of the of mm. the pantheon essentially and I, and i suppose being a newer god than say oriel mm. um the the same kind of creation stories don't seem to exist in the divine's pantheon yeah. like you know you have oriel and oriel's bow and shooting shooting the heart of Lorcan and all of yeah. that. They don't talk about Akatosh when they... I guess that's another with thing. any of that. It's just very vague. That's another thing I guess we should talk about, just to preface, that when your typically elven pantheons and elven beliefs um, is like what you call like, you know, Anuic, meaning like basically not favor not looking favorable upon creation. They thought it was like, you know, big Lorcan's trick and so on. We've betrayed, been betrayed and everything. And now we're stuck here in mortality. Whereas what they call what you can use as a term for like patamaic as in the other other side of the coin is you know very favorable creation and they're like yes the gods loved us and created us and we were created by the gods not descended from the gods but the eight divines and and imperial religion and nordic religion all have that core underlying belief like they don't believe that these eight divines um you know were betrayed or something they believe in they were created willingly because you can i think it's the song um shazar's song is the text i think or something like that um and it explains um shazar's place in thing but it's like sort of shazar came to the gods and sort of showed them all the beautiful things they could create with life so they sacrificed their own power to sort of create mortality and so on so it was like a positive experience so and that's like underlies their entire religion because you know that's like the guess get down to the fundamentals so yeah their creation story changes substantially yeah. the simple involvement of shazar or shor or lorcan in the pantheon as a worship god makes it kind of innately patamaic yeah. like um you know so yeah simply viewing favorably creation is 
is a bad thing to elves and that's why Lorcan will always be he'll never be even though he's a bad deity to them he's never going to be worshipped or considered a part of their pantheon so that is the unusual thing unusual thing about Shazar Shazar is a recognized god in the in the imperial religion but is not included in the nine divines or at least not openly yeah you know if it is it's and it, it could be, it could have been different much earlier as well like you could argue that um uh Riemann and talos and so on and these big figures of the empire kind of took his place of, of reverence in, mm. in a way anyway like you know i have even considered making a video on it before but I'll have to, I'd have to work it out. But basically, the, there's this sort of idea that Talos is not, like, mantling Lorcan, but he's, like, the functional sort of, you know, replacement for, and the same as, like, Shazar. Like, so Shazar was, like, you know, pro-man, and he was sort of what, you know, started this whole thing off. But then Talos has kind of become the living embodiment of him, kind of. But then there's all this Shazarine stuff, yeah. and it's, you know... Yeah, he makes his will known through, through um, aspects called Shazarines or you know different versions of him that pop up you can't get rid of him completely even if you tear out his heart and shoot it into the ocean it's not gonna it's not gonna do the trick yeah but um yeah I suppose I suppose we could move off Akatosh yeah um obviously we know there's all different interpretations like Alkosh in the Khajiit religion but we can hop on over to RK who says honor the earth its creatures and the spirits living and dead Guard and tend the bounties of the mortal world and do not profane the spirits of the dead. Yeah. Ooh, life and death God. <laughs> mm, I, I very much see him as a as fundamental to kind of almost enacting Akatosh's sphere. You know, it um really um focusing on the cycle of life and death and not and not disrespecting it by seeking immortality through profane means or you know the undead all of this stuff it breaks the cycle it, it it kind of disrespects time and you know being a worshiper of rk kind of guarantees you to respecting and taking part in the cycle of life and death and you know not being afraid to die and knowing that you'll come back eventually and that you know the cycle goes on and on yeah i what do you guys think about his uh his origin one of his potential origins as a mortal because i think it's a rather fanciful story just because like at the creation of rk as one of the eight divines this is way back in the first era and the sort of tone of the book of like oh it's a shopkeeper and sort of it seems oh, a bit more yeah modern I, I, don't, civilization. I don't buy it yeah. at all and it I could buy just, it but it's cool it could easily be an example you know how like people like obviously when king arthur was first written about they're writing about it kind of like you know, um, with modern technology, well, to them, modern technology, they're all knights in shining armor, but like the time period they're talking about is like very different in the reality of yeah, it. Yeah, he essentially becomes an archetype. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you know what King Arthur, for example, represents and say there are, you know, it hit, King Arthur could actually be a, a dozen different kings in the, um, the old Britain times. Mm doing certain things and their stories kind of get embodied into one being who just resembles these chivalric values etc etc and rk his role yeah the idea that he was just a shopkeeper doesn't really make sense for his actual origins but it kind of does align with what he represents and the idea you know kind um, of and it's just kind of a good being story. a mortal himself and experiencing it kind of also you know you can now kind of gives a better understand of the mortal cycle and having lived and dying yourself yeah. and like so it's like thematically it, it assists who i he mean is. the the monomyth is is the more realistic but boring suggestion which is that he was just one of the first spirits to crystallize after the start of time um yeah. the shopkeeper one just for people who don't know it was that he was this shopkeeper who was just obsessed with like knowledge and learning and he just constantly was just trying to understand um, this book, which was written in some weird language. And dis and he just got like so absorbed in it that he ignored everything about about him, around him, sorry. Um, then he realized it explained life and death itself. But he spent so much time with his head in this book, he was like about to die um, with an incurable plague. And then he prays to Mara and it's Mara who says to him, I'll make you RK basically and you'll be this god living forever but in charge of the cycles of life and death or you can die and he chose to be RK apparently yeah he's is uh 
Arcade's got more interesting interpretations than some of the other, some of the other pantheons, but I will say I do like if you look at the because there's ideas that the um, sort of celestial bodies or planets in in the sort of universe in Mundus are you know representations of the of the gods themselves, so they can call a planet Arcade. But when Manamarco ascended to godhood in the, in the warp in the West, he became like manifest as the necromancer's moon, which orbits Arcade, um, and then eclipse. I think it eclipses him. Once every eight days, shining a purple light called the Shade of the Revenant, and I'm pretty sure that's how they make the Black Soul gems and so on. But that's a really cool. I just like the idea of just you know the the god of life and death having this sort of spiteful moon going around and <laughs> trying to like to, you know what mm. I mean, like a yeah, yeah. No, that is that is cool, and it's interesting too because that's kind of in uh, Oblivion, in the sense that you have the like the shrines and stuff that they're making the Black Soul gems yeah. with. But yeah. then you also have Manamarco appearing in the flesh in the game saying, I am Manamarco. Yeah, then... and then you kind of get into the dragon break. He's sort of, he's the god form and the one reality where he's immortal and the two things split. So we both became the necromancer's moon, but then also remained immortal, which is the one you fight in Oblivion. But it kind of gets a bit whack. There's a lot, you, look, everyone who's listened to this podcast for a while now knows that um, if you're interested in the law, you have to create a lot of copes for bad writing. You, you have to, it, it's, uh, that's the art form, you know, and the unreliable narrator you can work with it because of that. But yeah. Mm. Well, before we officially started this podcast, I said, let's role play as gods. And you two both said Debella at the same time. Yeah. Debella. I, so, I just, Debella, it sounds like it the best. I, like if I was in a cult, like I'd be in the cult of like Debella, <laughs> like in the, all of them. Well, it's just beauty and art and widespread cults are dedicated to both healing and sexual instruction. It sounds like the most hippie, beautiful existence, kind of like peaceful kind of, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, it, it sounds really cool. And one thing I like about Debella, which is interesting, I feel like here's a little take: um, Debella as a being of beauty and art and all of these kind of things that exist within the mortal experience and life and so on. And she is a god that seems to have her origin with men and the Nordic pantheon and so on, and doesn't really appear in Elven pantheons. Um, so that kind of like place there is kind of like you can kind of see an underlying appreciation for life whereas elven gods don't like it like they're not uh, you know mm. more elves generally are like they're you know scorn um they're the not about being in. paid in moans the elves mm, yeah they're too boring and i mean they're definitely like she's always going to get a bad rap because you you're always going to have very pious people who are just like you know Debella, it's just a sex cult. Debella's, <laughs> but it's just a, you know. But there, there's obviously there's so much more to yeah. it. And at but that the same time, you've never got to not be like, removed. Because like obviously in in a in a world where we live, where like Christianity has been so successful and its sort of attitudes towards sexual interaction and so on. Whereas if you go to you know back to like the Romans, which is very clearly like what a lot of this is kind of um, connected to, is um, or influenced by, had um, different attitudes towards. Uh, sex and purity and stuff and like things wouldn't it, it's you know what I mean like the whole idea of sexual purity and so on might not and I would probably say in the else probably does not apply but could with certain groups and so on like there's different ways of of um, standards too outside of like the kind of Christian um, version of it or traditional Christian or old mm. Christian whatever you want to call it but you know what I'm getting at um, so whereas like you might not find it like the, the the problem with it for example for that others might have might not be that oh it's a devious kind of sexual thing that is happening elsewhere it's actually that it's about the indulgence and not valuing things like you mm. know righteousness or work or like or like it's like the distraction thing. like as the khajiit would say it, it makes you stray from the the path yeah so the actual grievance is with the sort of indulgence sort of lifestyle and like kind of thing that's associated with it as opposed to the actual sexual purity Ooh, or, uh, what about a priest of yeah. rk saying you're not respecting the cycle of life and death because you're doing it recreationally <laughs> well one way i look at debella at least at least in the imperial perspective is like i 
I think she merges perfectly fine with Mara's sphere because I, the way I kind of imagine it is that you know Mara is about marriage and responsibility to your partner and procreation and kind of like fertility and all of this stuff. But then Debella is like, oh, you, you know, there's more than just the duty and responsibility of of marriage and whatnot. There's you know also being in love and being passionate about your relationship. It it facilitates Mara's sphere, so they kind of work perfectly. It's like um. Mm. You know, the crops are only going to grow if they're fertilized. And let's and and let's. Attitude. I I agree, and and I guess we can't forget the art component of Debella as well, which is you know a big component. May not sound as interesting, but it's there. I mean, she has the brush of true paint artifact that we saw in Oblivion, which can be used to literally paint things into reality, which I think is very cool. As much as I don't like fighting painted trolls. There's the other thing too, is just about the difference between um, monotheism and like, I guess, polytheism and so on, is that um, in a monotheistic religion, you're just sort of worshipping the one and following like their kind of you know, codes and, and so on. Whereas in in uh, religions such as this, um, with lots of different gods, you invoke them for different re- reasons. And if, that if you were like, you know, some artist, Debella would be beneficial to you or someone that you would I- invoke and, and pray to and want her mm. blessings and so on or like a yeah, yeah i was just muse. thinking yeah. that like yeah. praying to the invoking yeah. the muse i mean arguably you can even say that like catholics for example or like saints and so on is done somewhat like you know i don't know pray to or, or whatever you would reference i don't know the intricacies of it but there are like patrons or, of you know xyz mm. and and artists or something then you you know give offering to this saint or something like that for for that but in this it's a yeah, god exactly. yeah but uh yeah she teaches no matter the seed if the shoot is nurtured with love will the flower not be beautiful so it's a very uh all-inclusive seeming what's uh, her little worship? symbol hmm. you know the elder scrolls online emblem i just can't i, I am i isn't it a flower being silly here the no flower, but what's yeah. what's that attached to see the thing with the blue i i, I think it's like a bud of a flower, I assume. I'll tell you what, uh, it looks I've... like a pomegranate to me. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a blue pomegranate. Mm. But yeah, like flowers and petals and stuff have generally been her kind of deal. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's cool. Like I like even in the ESO, the Debellan doll masks. If you sort of scroll down the wiki there and have a look, it's just kind of like all these beautiful sort of Venetian kind of masks. And you can imagine like all of the cool mm. art that would come from her cults and so on and, and i like her representation as a moth in in the nordic mm. pantheon just the idea of like these bright and beautiful colored wings with yep. with many colors on a it. beautiful moth drawn to the light of inspiration <laughs> but um yeah so there's more to it's more to her than just a bit of sex yeah don't don't write but off. now let's go to julianos god of logic <laughs> wisdom and the arts <laughs> of magic yeah, Julianos is a god that seems to have definitely fallen out of favor with Nordic religion, mm. like Junal. He's a bit of an incel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, Dude. yeah, look, there's no time for, for art and beauty and sex when you've got logic. <laughs> Literature yeah. and contradiction, boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Associated with magic, often revered by wizards. Um, like I'm saying, Junal, Nordic father of language and mathematics, isn't so popular anymore. I guess the Debella cult kind of kicked him out. Um, but yeah, Julianos is one of those divines that isn't particularly interesting, Decent. but kind of needs to be there to yeah. have like all the, it's like fire, wind, earth. And then it's like, okay, we, we just need this one because you just, know, it's another element. He's filling the place. Like he, he is like a school teacher god is the kind of vibe <laughs> I get from him. I, I just think of, you know... Uh, when they say he falls out of favor, well, I don't think it actually gives a specific time frame, but I, I, I tend to think it's the magical aspect of him that has somewhat fallen out of favor. Because, like, for example, after the Oblivion Crisis and the kind of breakdown of magical institutions and people start to look skeptically at magic, like it's associated with the Daedra. And... Um, I think that might be part of why he's been a bit shunned. Yeah, in the in the Nordic one specifically, it's that I think it's overall the attitudes when you have Junal and it's like he was the god of hermetic orders and and the clever men and stuff. Whereas the art of the clever men sort of became less revered over time, and I guess magic got associated more with the devious elves. And then mm-hmm. obviously that even gets more amplified as things go on. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, because by yeah. the time of Skyrim, all the Nordic gods have fallen out of favor. But re- but remember, yeah. magic to 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 the Imperials, um, the Imperial Battle Mage archetype, or as a unit in their yeah. thing, is very important. So you can see how like you know knowledge of magic and so on has been part of their um, thing. But, yeah, yeah. Look, so he's- he represents learning, scholarship, justice. His domains include alchemy, enchantment, sorcery. Um, I do like the thing he is said to incant the damned equation. Yeah. That's cool. Two out of ten snooze fest. Let's move it on. <laughs> Kinnereth, let's go. Um, okay. Kinnereth's cool. Her role is somewhat kind of down... Well, not downplayed, but watered down when it comes to the Imperial Pantheon. It's it's mostly just an association with the elements. and Nature. You know, and the weather it's, and nature, as opposed to her fundamental role in the in, in human society. Like Kine is far more interesting, I think, and mm. it, you know is more heavily involved in the Nords' religion. Whereas, like you're saying, Kinnereth is, uh, I don't know, nothing, nothing particularly, nothing particularly interesting. And it's it's also too like her cool stuff, kind of even like now they recognize like Kinnereth, you know, obviously or. Slash Kine as the mother of the demigod Mora House, but it's like she was sort of known as Kine back then. Like it was kind of pre-formation of the Eight Divines, mm. anyway. And um, yeah, look to be honest, Kinnereth specifically, not Kine, and the other interpretations, which are much cooler in my opinion, um, is just the nature god filling that out in the pantheon. You know, the god of heavens winds rains remember there's even when you go and get the the is it the boots of the crusader and in like one of the challenges you're not supposed isn't it you're not supposed to fight back at the bear or something attacking you or the spriggan or something is that's the challenge mm. um yeah 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 tested. when the pilgrim didn't fight back having reverence for nature yeah. kinnereth allowed them entrance to the grotto where the boots were hidden and wearing the boots means that the creatures of the forest won't attack you anyway. I mean, at least Kinnereth's the mother of Morahouse, the demigod. That's kind of that's kind of cool. But you can imagine some cool things like an army, like, you know, praying to her or something before they go on a march to, you know, make sure the rain stay away or favorable weather and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, merchants needing favorable yeah. winds to travel to sell their wares and things like yeah. that. To be honest, a lot of these gods, a lot of the divines seem rather like practical do you know what i mean like they don't mm. have a as we said at the start it, they kind of just revolve around useful functions of society yeah really i mean like kind of too the other thing is you can kind of like reduce you could say that the eight divines are almost like reduced to the archetypes the most like if we were talking about adric archetypes and like a time god or whatever it's like akatosh feels like the most i guess like base time god like he doesn't have an elven flavor to him or he doesn't have some like nordic kind was of it, was it based or base time J- god? just base, base. <laughs> just the base well you god. you do have to kind of tear away the stories from from these gods like for example with kine um you know the the nords believe that when it rains it's her tears mourning over the loss of shore and that that would have been one of those aspects where it's like Alicia coming up with the religion. We can't really have that if we want to appease the elven elements of things. So we kind of, yeah, as you said, boil it down to the basic sphere, mm. the basic aspect of what they represent think, and take away a lot of the context. I think you need to be careful, Drew. I can see your Witcher necklace swinging in the background. I'm, I'm knocking it, against it's this. It's almost yeah. as if she's sending an earthquake to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Teach you a lesson. That'd be me fidgeting too much, but you know. Well, how about? But yeah, kind of. Basically, is a is a bit boring. Kinder how F. about we look at Mara? Mara's Mara's cool. Everyone likes Mara. You have yeah. to be a bit weird to not like Mara. Mother you know, figure, goddess yeah. of love, agriculture, compassion, fertility. Interesting agriculture is there. I, I suppose it makes sense, yeah. but I always associate that with the Zenithar a lot more. Well, it's kind of more so the, the I guess, just fertility broadly, as in the fertility of the land, fertility like of the womb, everything like yeah. that's related to growing new life. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, she's obviously really um, closely intertwined with marriage ceremonies, as you know, in Skyrim. And it's sort of, she is the, she seems to be like the marriage god, really. Yeah. Um, on top of other things. Also, interestingly, I think it's the elves that they believe that she was the wife of Auriel, 
Whereas in the Nordic one, she is the, the handmaiden to kind and concubine to Shaw um, as well. So Mara is a figure that's seen as like in relation to like the chief of the gods or whatever. But so in a way she is like a, um, if you looked at like Alduin or, or Auriel or Shaw as the father figure of their respective pantheons, you could kind of see her as somewhat of a important mother like figure. mother figure kind of. Yeah. Mummy Mara. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, except I guess Kine in the Nordic one kind of takes yeah. that, but she's like the extra one though. She's a concubine and mm. you can make cool She's, she's that, the side, the side chick. The side piece. Yeah. Divine commands mortals to live soberly and peacefully, honor your parents and preserve the peace and security of home and family. It is a bit and do your homework, isn't it? It's very... <laughs> but you can kind of go like, <laughs> like... Like you could see, you know, we were talking about like uh, stuff with Debella, uh, Debella. You could see how, for example, um, you know, things of erotic instruction and all of that kind of sort of sex cult stuff could um, pull away people from what you know mara's more sacred duties of like sort of family hearth and home and 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 love and like connection or something like that you know it can you know i don't say it necessarily has to just you know what i'm getting at you know yeah hmm. i was uh, trying to think because everything that uh, a lot of things that are interesting about mara are her interpretations in other culture like mora Morwa with the red guards mm. yeah well, definitely actually, a fertility goddess with multiple arms i think trying she has to many arms trying to grab different husbands and yeah. grab more and so on but what's interesting there again like that's another sort of marriage sort of connection brought onto her it's as also a a, on the side on the side thing too like grabbing other people's husbands well it, it's yeah it, that's kind of it's a cool part about the red <laughs> or are guards. they just men are they other are they husbands that are already husbands or is she like making them well i guess husbands, it's sort of referring like, to like a polyamory like a husband being yeah like quite literally yeah. so but it's kind of a different dynamic one that you don't really see like a like a a reverse harem or you know lots of dudes to give you lots of kids but um <laughs> You know. I don't think it works that way. What? Lots of dudes to give you lots of kids. Yeah, like different flavors of kid, you know? Uh, I guess so. You just Because you take the different husbands. You get what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah I'm different. just saying that the incubation. I mean, I don't yeah. know. She has f- four of anything else. She's a she's god, bro. Four arms, so. Maybe she has four worms In- or more. Four incubators, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? That's beast. <laughs> just got to get that bread in the oven. <laughs> She's a full on. She's a full on bakery. She's just churning out sourdough and nice some bakes too. <laughs> um, Stendhal. Stendhal wouldn't be happy with all of this. Oh no. Um, God of mercy, though charity, well earned luck, and justice. Unless, of course, you are like a Daedra or undead, in which case you will get no mercy whatsoever, and he will want you wiped from the world yeah and we know he has his vigilance of stendar as one example um of like people mm. go out and crusade like he, he seems like you could kind of say like a a crusader god like you know at least and i wonder how much um it's abused essentially in the same way that like um you know the call to um to, to the real crusades and so on was like you know heavily abused for land stealing and and, and stuff like that you could um you know that righteous cause and justice and did I, <laughs> honestly justice and righteousness a lot of the time it's red red flag like if you hear it like it's <laughs> good intentions f- pave the path to what the, is it yeah to the, hell the, or something. the um the road to hell's paved with yeah. good intentions but especially when it's uh, involved with the imperials i i like the aspect of him that is kind of related to keeping rulers in check like his idea of righteous rule by might and mer- well, by might yeah as you said bit of a red flag but merciful forbearance so the idea that um the gods aren't just telling the serfs what to do it's like no the the most powerful people in the kingdom also in the empire also need to follow the gods and not become corrupt and you know follow um, follow the rule of law and be a merciful good emperor so I do like that aspect of him, but yeah, that probably gets ignored a bit when it's convenient. Yeah. But um, go among the infirm and wounded wherever you may find them. Do not hoard wealth or indulge physically. And you could say it's like, yeah, you know, that's, you know, they're good things you should do. But I feel like a lot of the emperors that model themselves, like they, they definitely indulge 
definitely mm. hold well. I don't know if that, it's kind of like you know the idea versus the execution. I think it, it, it is interesting as well that he seems to not really acknowledge worshippers like or distinguish between worshippers and heretics. Like he kind of treats everyone fairly, but he still wants obviously you to worship him like any god would. Mm. Um, but he doesn't seem to be like a big uh, favorite playing deity it's interesting too and we've kind of talked about this but like through the elven and nordic lens through the elven lens he's seen as an apologist of men which is mm. you know a kind of mercy apologizing for men's misgivings to the elves really but um and then in the reverse it's like uh, he's a god of ransom which is kind of like the hardcore nordic version of a mercy you know telling them how to take mm. on war prisoners instead of just killing everyone so he's a i guess he's a healthy middle ground stender <laughs> In that regard, mm. and he's got a cool symbol, like the whole the whole cup pouring a drink out. It's just an interesting little, like a holy grail. Yeah, like it, like I'm just glad it's not like the scales. You know what I mean? Like Lady of Justice kind of looking thing. Yeah, 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 true. Something different. All right, hmm. we got um, Xenathar. I think Xenophar. he is by far the most like forgotten like if, if when i used to rest mm, the least yeah i for, i forget for sure. about him relatively well not regularly because we you know write and talk about him so much but when i was a kid xenathar would be like the one i would forget yeah <laughs> like is uh <laughs> oh that's such a rip uh, i mean i like the whole idea that he is associated with the bosmeri god zen yeah um which is kind of i'm pretty sure like an agriculture god yeah God of toil, agriculture, payment in kind, but also vengeance to them, which is interesting. I, I Perhaps I could see some kind of traditional eye for an eye elements there mm. in, in vengeance, but he is very much a, a God of work and commerce and the whole concept of like, you know, you get ahead in life by working hard and being fair and honest and not through war, bloodshed or theft. Um, but he's yeah he's kind of an important god to stop rebellions and things like that just you know um if you if you work the fields all day in the in the hot beating sun keep at it because <laughs> you'll be rewarded for it um in <laughs> kind he's of the god. god of capitalism <laughs> kind of he he's but he does have that more religious element of like honest work like that real yeah. honest profit Honest, yeah. honest work for the farmers and, and, the, and the guys who worship him, like sitting yeah. there with their big coffers full of like trade gold. and commerce and gold. And they're like, yeah, yeah. the God of Go, stocks. It's, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that he's also seen as a warrior God. Um, mm. Although one who apparently is restrained and reserved in times of peace. Yeah, I mean, we've got to, like, put... Remember, all of these divines are through the context of a continent-spanning empire whose entire, like, work is conquering other people and taking their provinces. Of course. We've of talked course. about this before, but, and, like, one day we'll do it while, basically, like, why the empire are not these, like, good guys, like, these super good guys. Like, they do... Like, everyone is very anti-imperialism and anti-empires in the modern world and so on, but they seem to kind of forget that this is what's happening to them. It's, like, it's very easy to, to paint the Stormcloaks as like some very like, oh, they're just a bunch of silly racist types. And I mean, a lot of them are very xenophobic, but you can imagine how would you feel if some other kind of like faction, I suppose, came to your province or country, told you you couldn't worship your god and had agents roaming around that would like, you know, it's like 1984 kind of thought police. It, like if they find you, they're going to take you away and kill you. Were they ever that bad? Huh? Were they ever that bad in the places where well, they I'm talking about where with they Talos. Like literally in by the time of Skyrim, there's far more agents that they've permitted to walk around in Skyrim, capture Nords who worship Talos and take them away. And look, some people will go yeah. like, oh, they've been it, but they've been part of the Empire for ages and all of that kind of stuff. But it's like... You know, Scotland's been um, Scotland or Ireland, for example. Would very, there's a lot of people there would very much like their independence or their own cultural sort of things, but they've been at the go. Right, enough <laughs> <of that. Next>. <laughs> the <laughs> Englishman. <laughs> Just to add to the add to the Talos point, I, I feel like I would put most of the blame for that on the old Mary Dominion over the Empire. I think if the Empire were uh, had a you know, I'm I'm talking about them like they're this monolith, but obviously it depends on who's in power and who's on the council and who's the emperor. The but, Empire, but I feel like the 
the empire is not going to be imposing you know torture and death penalty for worshipping talos and and other examples of them i'm not saying imperialism is a good thing but spreading into other continents they tend to do it with some grace like for example like looking at black marsh things didn't go that well but the idea is they put in infrastructure they don't try to mess with the um the the local cultures too much they try to integrate th- it and try I feel to like make it's they couldn't in black marsh and same as Morrowind. Like put it, look, well, put it Morrowind. They yeah, install but... a puppet king, and if you look at the like political trajectory of Morrowind in the, the time since it was conquered, compared to you know the four hundred years later or whatever, by the end of the third era, it was going in a very different place. Yeah. Look, my whole my, my whole All point I'm saying is it's not like crazy dogmatic. You know, worship no, our no, gods it's not. if you worship it's someone not. who's not. Al- it, it's you're like, right. That's it's not a... that. But my point was simply just that the empire is so much worse than everyone thinks, and they definitely do go into other cultures territories and change things. yeah it's simply put it's the same as the roman empire a lot of their motivations wasn't like it's not like a religious crusade or dominance or anything like that they just go in for economic reasons fund some wars go take bounty you know control new places new resources it's just it's just not black and white like a lot of people will very much like oh yeah the empire is the good guys and the storm I mean, the yeah, bad guys and it's like there's, I totally agree there's some that. nuance there yeah like there a good do you know what there. a good game is look at the Elder Scrolls Adventures Red Guard and that's all about the resistance to, to Tiber yeah. Septim's empire and actually shows you the other side and it's like he's not coming in and and to add to that to, to unleash a giant brass god on the Somerset Isles <laughs> to bring money <laughs> it, it, it's, the equi- the it's like it. the equivalent of like a nuke in our real world in terms of destruction mm. way more even like you know, if you believe the outer canon sort of law, they're like unleashing a thousand years of broken time war with mirror logicians or whatnot. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But even not, like, you know, then he goes around and, like, you know, um, uses the Numidium to purge unloyal families and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> Diver Scepter was a bastard, bro. <laughs> he's a, yeah. he's awful dude. Well, it, it, I think that's the perfect segue to talk about Talos. Mm, uh, the final divine if you would like to include nine divines in your list yeah so um yeah i mean i i think it's kind of like there is obviously i don't think the you know the aldmeri dominion are just trying to stop his worship or so on but like he he is a uh god a divine essence like the story of um of daggerfall and and how it all plays out like he most certainly has like some sort of you know divinity for sure um but yeah like we've kind of touched on this before that tiber septum or you know talos as he's known becomes like a uh sort of god or focus point for like other emperors to aspire to and for a sort of he is like a manifestation a divine manifestation of the empire itself but um, one thing that really gripes me, and I think I was loading up Oblivion recently, and then in one of the lines or something, it's like, oh, the Septim Empire is like direct descendants of, of Tiber Septim. They're not. Like, the entire yeah. Septim is not direct at all. And that's like, a loading screen, too, which is meant to be considered, yeah. like, but, you uh, know, you canon. Know, this is the kind of myth they could run with, I guess, though. You never know the modern world. Or, or this is the other thing. This is kind of contrived by, like, ancient some ancient people and older groups had different understandings of like hereditary, um, you know, hereditary lines and so on. A lot of the time it's like not necessarily, um, not a lot of the time, but some of the time, not necessarily just straight up like blood and genetics related. Like we're looking back at things from a very genetic kind of, like for example, like uh, blood bonds and blood brothers and so on in a lot of cultures were treated very literally as brothers. It was the same as a genetic brother when you make those bonds. Mm. It's a, um, because they didn't have like some genetic understanding. They're looking at it for a more like religious kind of spiritual, cultural kind of connection. And when you make, you know, that kind of connection. So in that same way, there's, there's examples of like uh, different ideas of, you know, how they could work at, I don't know, like how the, how the hered like, you know what I mean? They're head canoning that they're a direct descendant, but if you look at the, the actual like timeline, that everyone's descended functionally from Tiber Septim's brother uh, on his um, Tiber Septim's niece. Really, is the next crowned Kintara. What well, and the idea that Tiber Septim d- deserves a place amongst the divines is kind of weird when you've got Reman, who is. He's a, he's a cultural god, he's a cultural hero to the Imperials, and really it makes sense that Tiber Septim would be the same. 
but it's it's definitely these kind of other elements of Talos that make Talos what Talos is that is kind of sneaking into the divines. It's definitely definitely a bit of um, Shaw or Lorcan's work. Well, going remember, on. and to just to keep bear in mind, like obviously, if you you know when you play the games or read the lore, like you can get all of the heresies and the stories and the backstory and stuff. But the typical, if you go around to the Imperials or if you go to the Stormcloaks today and so on, they believe that Tiber Septim was such a great man, the Talos of Atmora, that he literally just turned into a god because he's so cool. In the same way that that's how a lot of the um, that people believed that Vivek Almalexia and Sotha Silla created, they achieved apotheosis by just being so like, whoa, enlightened and, and boom. Like they don't have, like it's not part of their scripture that they, you know, murdered Nerevar and stole the heart of Lorcan in the same way that it's not in the scripture mm. that, you know, the, the, that's why the Harcturian is a heresy is a heresy. It's not. Yeah. Mm. It is interesting to, to read some of the reasons they come up with um, by the time of Skyrim as to why worshipping uh, Talos was a mistake, like the Talos mistake book, and it's mm. like very pandering to the Thalmor. It says our our Thalmor friends who will who may we find centuries of peace and prosperity with our new Thalmor friends. Um, but basically, they say worshiping Talos was a mistake because it basically distracted them from the eight, who are more important. It yeah. pushed people away from the eight divines, the true gods who do deserve our love and reverence and all focusing way too much on Talos, um, who weakened the memory of the man Tiber Septum. I mean, it's like, it's the kind of thing, it's like, I don't necessarily disagree either, because Talos has never been my, like, you know, favorite god or anything. Like, I didn't, you know what I mean? We've got a bunch of uh, Thalmor supporters. To blink, blink twice if you've, uh, <laughs> if you've been captured. Well, one thing, like tying it back to what we said near the beginning is it is kind of important to the Divine's religion that there be a fairly strong disconnect between the mortals who worship them and the gods themselves. They're very um, disassociated from the people because they kind of, the idea is they sacrifice their power to create the world and to maintain it. And with the exception of a few serious instances, they don't really meddle at all. Whereas with Talos, you've got this, this figure who was a part of many of these people's lives. They know all of these stories. They've got all of these interactions with him. So yeah, if he does join the Divines, he does become the centerpiece because, you know, while all the others are just chilling and not really getting involved, if they can even get involved, Talos is a big part of mm. human and, society. And I, sorry, go sorry. Okay, because you've got a, just a joke to say. How about no, you no, say no. it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a joke. It's just actually interesting is that in, in Morrowind, there's uh, an avatar of Tiber Septum slash Talos called Wolf. And he actually, I just like his opinion. He says, the emperor is getting old. Don't know how much longer he'll hang on. So is the whole empire for that matter. Getting old, that is. The emperor and the legions have held the empire together for hundreds of years. It's been a good thing by and large, but maybe it's time for a change. Time for something young and new. What? No idea. Because I'm old. Old dog doesn't get new ideas. But maybe young folks like you should try some new ideas. I don't know. Could be nit messy, but change is never pretty. But it's just interesting that like the... His, if you were to take that as complete like truth and so it's kind of like Talos like yeah giving up he's like yeah whatever the Empire's dead gone like he's, he's done anything. because he doesn't care man he's a god now like you can imagine that kind of thing and this is the sort of theory working theory behind a lot of Kim stuff anyway is that when you become so divine and so all powerful you you become estranged from like the petty like mm. creating but what about the whole idea what about the whole idea that the Thalmor kind of want to kill Talos by killing the worship of him because entities receive power through worship like mm. wouldn't he care about that well I, there's the there's the kind of i don't know like it's kind of hard to work it in with all of the kim stuff and so on because there's it gets really complicated and yeah. contrived like in the same way that vivek like kim god vivek is like different to like living god vivek okay. it goes on it gets a bit anyway gets a what, bit crazy and, I, well, I was gonna say anyway before that talos i can see how talos would become a very tempting god because let's be real, a lot of the other ones are pretty, like, generic. And then you've got this god that's basically like, I was like you and I ascended to godhood. Mm. It's this very ambitious, like, maybe I can become a god too if I do good deeds and conquer the world. He's and, got and a good story. Like a good backstory, you know? Yeah. Good personality, you know? Yeah. Plus, to, uh, to answer your question as well, Michael, um, the if we, if we buy into the idea that Talos is kind of the mingled aspects of these these different figures one of which being wolf half being a um, an aspect of shaw 
if the elves are trying to get rid of Talos worship, it absolutely ensures interest to kind of keep staying relevant and staying a part of things and to continue undermining the elves at every at every uh, turn. Yeah. So so Talos worship will cause conflict beyond just this civil war in Skyrim. Mm. So long as Shaw's involved. Talking about before is like that he could Talos could be like the you know, uh, metaphysical, like, rebirth or reincarnation of Shaw. Like, if you go with the idea that, you know, Xeranarchus and, and Izmir and all that were different, like, Shezarines or whatnot, and the three kind of, like, pieces kind of come back into Talos. And then there's all these kind of other theories that you can kind of go, like, Talos, you know, manifests like a Shezarine. Like, relate, like, um, being related to the last dragonborn and him being a manifestation of all that and, you know, staving off the end of the world. But yada, yada. But that sort of gets into, like, a lot of crazy theory stuff. But, um, but I yeah. I suppose so. that brings us to the end of the divines. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very interesting podcast coming next where we're going to be going through a bunch of your questions. So definitely stay tuned for that. Social media links are down in the description below, as is a link to buy some Fudge Muppet merch if you want to get a sick t shirt like this one. And Scott, finish the outro. Bye. See you all. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>